action in the demand for adherence to duty. An Aryan resurgence and ultimately total Aryan victory. Ten hearts, one beat, 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 one hundred hearts, one beat. Ten thousand hearts, one beat, 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 total Aryan victory. Ten hearts, one beat, 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 one hundred hearts, one beat. Ten thousand hearts, one beat, 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 born to fight and to die and to continue to march. One beat, 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 one hundred hearts, one beat. Ten thousand hearts, one beat, 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 total Aryan victory. Ten hearts, one beat, 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 one hundred hearts, one beat. This dude, uh, I mean, this guy's dick drugged the ground, man. He had huge balls, um, and he lived it, right? He lived it, man, and we're going to talk about him. I'm talking about the great Robert J. Matthews, born in Mafia, or what is this? Marfa. <laughs> I don't know why I said Mafia. Marfa, Texas, on January 16th, 1953, the youngest of three sons, born to Johnny and Una Matthews, his father of Scottish descent, was the mayor of the town and the president of the Chamber of Commerce, as well as a businessman and leader of the local Methodist church. The family moved to, the, uh, to Phoenix, Arizona, though he was an average student through grade school. History and politics interest him, interested, interested, him, interested him. At age 11, he joined the John Birch Society. <laughs> at fucking 11, bro. At 11. The last thing I was thinking about at fucking the age of 11 was anything political. Like, I was just not there at that age. You know what I mean? Uh, at all. I can relate a little bit. I was fairly precocious as a kid, and I was I was probably, like, I wasn't, like, all the way over to our position, but I was very politically aware and, and, and arguably, like, a third positionist already by then. Um, I used to be obsessed with the news and stuff like that, so I can, I can kind of relate to that level of interest at that age. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was into, like, fucking... Negro shit when I was at yeah. I mean I was into like coming out of like playing with toys and shit right into entering puberty and getting into like thuggish shit at that age so the last yeah thing I, I mean I was I was, was bouncing around my, my experience was that I used to hang my grandfather I used to hang with my grandfather uh, and my, my time that I used to spend with my grandfather I'd, I'd be ever since I was a little early memories of mine three four years old I'd sit beside his chair and he, he'd make me like go up and change the um the channel on the tv like before he had a remote control I was his like remote control and so I'd sit there and just watch what he watched. So I'd w watch the news with my grandfather. And that was kind of like what got me into like paying attention to politics pretty much since I can remember. Hell yeah. Uh, so, uh, John Burt, okay, yeah. Uh, and I joined the John Burt Society at age 11. Also the Mormon Church and later joined the Young Republicans. After dropping out of high school his senior year, Matthews formed the Sons of Liberty an anti-communist militia dominated by survivalists and fellow Mormons. The Son of Liberty had its peak at approximately 25 members. Matthew also joined an anti-income tax movement called the Income Tax Resistant Movement in 1973. He was arrested by the IRS for submitting false information on his employer's W-4 uh, tax withholding forms. He claimed 10 dependents. <laughs> he was, like, doing some white sovereign citizen shit where he, like, you know, taxation is theft, brother. And he fucking uh, filed, he, he claimed 10 dependents on his fucking tax returns to try to buck the tax system. Uh, ended up just getting a little misdemeanor charge. No big deal. Uh, he had to pay, like, restitution on his income tax and do, like, a six-month probation. It wasn't much at all. Uh, when his probation ended, he moved to Medellin Falls in Washington, which is a small fucking town. And this is the kind of place I want to live. Uh, Medellin, uh, or I'm sorry, Medellin, excuse me, Medellin Falls, Washington, population 285. 
this is the, this, I mean, you know, personally, me personally, I think I don't think towns should be over 500 people. Right. I think we should live in smaller, walkable cities with 500 people or so. Uh, I think that's ideal. Uh, I think that's yeah. peak conditions. Yeah, I tend to agree, especially in rural areas. Um, like in ancient, like Vedic scripture, they had uh, recommendations for limitations on 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 large cities as well that they shouldn't be over a hundred thousand people. So yeah, I think that kind of that kind of thinking is very healthy for for white culture. Yeah, I think it. I think it builds an an, uh, an environment of accountability, right? You're, there's you're not so disconnected from one another so you're a lot uh more likely to be held accountable for your actions in a small community like that by yes. the community uh so yeah um uh he bought 60 acres uh he bought 60 acres of wooded property in Metaline Falls and he named it Matthews Acres he went to work for Bunker Hill Mining Company as an electrician hail the electrical trade uh they closed the mine in 77 so he went on to work for a concrete company uh but you know that shit, you know he was uh, getting restless, right? That shit wasn't working for him, so he just started to dive headlong into politics. Um, uh, in 1980, he joined the National Alliance with Pierce and them. Uh, so he that's where he cut his teeth in in the movement per se, right? Was with was with William Luther William Luther Pierce and the National Alliance. Uh, um, and you know it says here that Pierce actually worked with Rockwell. We all know that. Um, but it says Matthews, after reading two books published by the National Alliance, uh, which had profound effects on his life, decided to join. The books were Which Way, Western Man by William Gailey Simpson. I've never even heard of this uh, book, by the way. Which Way, Western Man by William Gailey Simpson. I'll put that in the chat real quick. Boom. All right. And, uh... Which Way Western Man was a story about a plot by Jews to destroy white Christians. And obviously we know what the Turner Diaries are. That was his other favorite book. Those are the books that really shifted him and made him decide to actually join up with the Alliance. <clears throat> was Which Way Western Man and obviously the Turner Diaries. Uh, in February 1982, Matthews began attending services at the Church of Jesus Christ Christians inside the Aryan Nations compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. The founder of the church and leader of the Aryan Nations was Richard Grant Butler. <clears throat> uh, he's the one that had those bad. He was having like these big parades. Uh, I think he had something to do with the guy. He was. Uh, I think he was related to the not related like by blood, but like he had he was affiliated with uh, the guy who wrote the Brigade Covington. Right. I think all of that stuff. All these people were all a part of the same little web. I think. Uh, I'm not real sure about that, but I think that's correct. Maybe someone in the chat can correct me on that. But anyways, um, yeah, he was going to church, a Christian church, um, uh, with the, at the Aryan Nation compound in Idaho. Uh, then he goes on and he finds his he founds his own little group called the White American Bastion, a splinter group organized to attract white Christian families to the Northwest. So he was doing a thing kind of like, um, kind of like Ozarkia, right? Where they're just trying to get families up here and build a, a white support, a white social support structure, right? Build a white community to live with families and not necessarily anything military or militant or political, just a white, uh, conclave, right? There you go. That's the word I'm for. He's trying to build a white conclave and he called it the, uh, white American bastion. Um, uh, it says the the white racial bastion was a uh, effort to recruit farmers and ranchers into the white racialist movement, ending with a call to arms. Matthew's speech received the only standing ovation at the convention. So that's the famous uh, speech that we are going to end the show with. Uh, it's a really, really good speech, and that's what we're going to play on the way out of here. As a, Instead of the normal ending song, we're going to play Bob Matthew's speech on the way out of here. <clears throat> but, uh... While at the convention, Matthews renewed acquaintances with Robert Allen Martinez, a fucking rat. I'm pretty sure that's the one that ratted him out. Somebody named Martinez ended up ratting him out. 
uh, a former Ku Klux Klanman from Philadelphia whom he unsuccessfully tried to recruit to the, yeah, this is him, who he unsuccessfully tried to recruit to the Bastion. Their close friendship would eventually prove to be Matthew's undoing. The founding of the order in late September 1983, uh, when Matthew's, the founding of the order took place in 1983, Matthew's invited eight men who he felt held beliefs similar to his own to his property in Meadowline Falls, uh, Kenneth Loft, his neighbor and best friend, David Eden Lane, which is the guy who wrote the 88 Precepts, which everybody should read if they haven't had a chance to, a former Klansman from Denver, Colorado, Daniel Daniel R. Bauer, a Denver... I don't know what the fuck that is. Daw Parameter, whatever the fuck that is. Uh, Randolph George Dewey and Bruce Carroll Pierce from the Aryan Nations and Richard Harold Kemp and William Soderquist... Uh, were recent recruits from the National Alliance. Although most of the men were known to law enforcement, none of them had yet committed any violent crimes or been in prison. That is something I wanted to point out when I read this the first time. Think about this, guys. This is in the fucking 80s. This is in the 1980s. These guys didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have this massive surveillance state that we live under. And all of them were known by the authorities, and none of them had ever been in trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. You think fucking encryption and anonymity and shit works on the internet? The fuck? They they know who the fuck we are. Yes, they do. Uh, uh, The group Matthews founded that night became known variously as the Order, the Silent Brotherhood, or the White American Bastion. The Turner Diaries became their Bible. Well, I don't know about all that. We got to remember, guys, this is from a a mainstream news site, so there's going to be some slanderous uh, language in here. We're just going to have to kind of pick through it, right? Uh, because it does, this is a pretty good, concise telling of his story that, you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, the order fund, the order's fundamental aim was overthrow of the Zionist, Zionist oppressive government, or I'm sorry, Zionist occupation government or Zog, a euphemism, a euphemism for the United States government, which they believe was controlled by a Jewish cabal. The order's revolutionary, I'm sorry, the order's revolutionary, Revolution was financed by armed robberies, counterfeiting, and other violent crimes intended to disrupt the American economy. And that is exactly what Matthews and his gang of (laughs) neo-Nazis decided to do. Uh, These were men of action, man. These were men who had been beaten down by this system. Their families had been abused by this system. These These were working men, farmers, truck drivers, who had been watching for decades their people be just chewed up and spit out by this anti-white system and they had had enough man and and this is this is the natural reaction right the reaction that bob matthews and the order had to the oppression of white people in this country is the natural reaction um so and here is where their their uh <laughs> their uh what do you want to call this their campaign began here right <clears throat> just balls of steel these guys uh on october 28, 1983, Matthew, Pierce, Dewey, and Bauer pulled up to their pulled their first armed robbery. And I want you to pay attention to the places they hit, right? They weren't robbing, uh, you know, like convenience stores and liquor stores and mom and pop shops. No, they fucking hit a fucking pawn, a porn shop. <laughs> first and foremost, porn shops, banks, armored trucks. They were only going after uh, things that were a part of the beast system, right? For lack of a better way to put it. Uh, so the first uh, job was a porn shop, a smut shop in Spokane, Washington, called Worldwide Video. Uh, the job only netted $369, so Matthew said, we're not doing that shit no more. Uh, it was only 369, 369 bucks, so they never hit a small, uh, they never did a small robbery like that again, right? He said it was too risky and not enough payout, so he's like, from now on, we're going big. We're not doing this shit no more. We're just going to go big. Uh, so, um, uh, da 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 November, uh, so after the next, no, or the following November, uh, Matthews organized a trip to Seattle with the intention of robbing an armored car there. They selected a the Fred Meyer store at 18, uh, 18425 Aurora Avenue North in Shoreline as their first target. Meanwhile, Lane was by, uh, busy setting up a counterfeiting operation at Hayden Lake, utilizing the offset press in the Aryan Nation's print shop and the assistance of a new recruit, Gary Lee Yarborough. On December 3rd, 1983, Bruce Pierce was arrested in Yakima for passing off counterfeit 50s. 
at the Valley Mall in Union Gap and for carrying a concealed weapon. A, fer- a federal judge in Yakima set his bail at $25,000 and Pierce was interviewed by a Secret Service agent from Spokane but kept his motherfucking mouth shut like a real fucking man. He kept his motherfucking lips sealed like a real fucking man. Uh, and because he did that, his brothers went and looked out for him. Listen to what this fucking, this fucking absolute lunatic, in a good way, uh, Bob Matthews did. His buddy's in jail. He hears that his buddy's not ratting. He knows his buddy's a stand-up guy. What's this fucking dude does? He goes and robs a fucking bank to get his bail money. <laughs> he goes and robs a fucking bank to get this guy's bail money and bonds his ass out. Uh, so in mid-March of 1984, Matthews, along with Pierce, Dewey, and Yarbrough, returned to, to the Seattle area to case of the Fred Meyer store on Shoreline. On Friday afternoon, March 16, 1984, a Continental Armored Transport truck pulled up to the store's main entrance to collect the weekly receipts. They robbed the guard just as he was leaving the office with six large money bags and coin boxes in a handcart. This time, the take was $43,345. On April 3, 1984, Bruce Pierce appeared in the U.S. Court, uh, U.S. District Court in Spokane, where he pled guilty to passing counterfeit currency. Since he was the first offense, since this was his first offense, Pierce, uh, though he would be likely to thought he would likely to be get a, he would be likely to get a light sentence or probation because he showed no remorse for his actions by refusing to reveal the source of the counterfeit bills and his ties to the Aryan Nation. The judge, uh, Judge Nichols, sentenced him to two years in federal prison. The judge gave Pierce three weeks to settle his affairs, ordering him to report to the U.S. Marshal Service before noon on April 24th. Pierce told the court he would be staying with Robert Matthews at Medline Falls when he failed to show up. The U.S. Marshals in Spokane issued a bench warrant for his arrest. Uh, Pierce, now a federal fugitive, had been busy elsewhere and had no intentions of serving the prison time. Uh, on April 20 or April 19th, 1984, Matthews, accompanied by Pierce. Parameter or Parameter, excuse me, Dewey, Kemp, Yarborough, and Andrew Virgil Barhill, a new recruit, returned to Seattle to carry out another armored car robbery, one they had scouted back in November of 1983. Their plan was to hijack another Continental armored transport truck as it was leaving the Northgate Mall with the weekend receipts for several large stores. In order to create a diversion for the robbery, Matthews told Yarborough to make a small time bomb. <laughs> and on Saturday uh, afternoon, April 22nd, Yarborough entered the embassy, a uh, X-rated movie theater. So he's going and he's blowing up a fucking jack-off shack. Right? He's going and the diversion he has, he goes to put this time bomb in a jack-off shack uh, located on Union Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues in downtown Seattle. And slipped the time, he slipped the time bomb under some vacant seats, then left the theater and made a phone call to the, cash, uh, to the cashier warning of the bomb. Shortly thereafter, it exploded, but the damage to the theater, to the theater was minimal, and nobody was seriously injured. Matthew planned, uh, Matthew planned to phone the embassy theater with another bomb threat just before the armed robbery on Monday, hoping to divert, attention, to divert the attention of the police. The heist took place on Monday afternoon, April 23, 1984, after the armored truck... <coughs> had made pickups at Nordstrom's, the Bonmark, and J.K. Gill, an office supply store, and an office supply store. The robbery was much more complicated and dangerous because it took place inside the Northgate Mall. <laughs> they didn't even wait for the truck to come out. They just went and robbed this motherfucker inside the goddamn shopping mall. Uh, the gang this time made off with $536,000. However, 300000 of it was in checks, which had to be destroyed. Uh, Matthews then used some of the money uh, to buy um, firearms, like basically firearms to like you know arm his his little group, uh, and a, com- a state of the art computer system is what he bought: firearms, ammunition, and a state of the art computer system. Sunday afternoon, April twenty ninth, nineteen eighty four, Pierce and Kemp decided to plant another small bomb underneath the congregation Atva Israel Synagogue located at. North 27th and West Bannock Street in Boise, Idaho. It was the first bomb Pierce had ever assembled, and the blast did little damage. There were no injuries, but the message to the Jewish community was clear. But Matthews was angry, not because the action was unauthorized, but because Pierce should have made the bomb stronger. (laughs) Uh, Let me check the chat real quick. All right. Uh, Let me get back over here to it. Um, Where was I at? 
On May 27, 1984, Dewey and Kemp, accompanied by two other recruits, David and Charles Tate from the Aryan Nations, and James. Oh yeah, so this is uh, they. Uh, one of the guys was going around, uh, basically running his fucking mouth to women, talking about all the fucking uh, trucks they were robbing and shit. So they they killed him. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens. You know what I mean? Like when you're involved in those kind of things, you kind of, you know, there's a there's a set of parameters you operate within, and you know if you step outside of those parameters, well, you know, consequences. Consequences, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, on May seventeenth, nineteen eighty four, Matthew sent. Uh, oh, the, so the Allenberg thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, Alan Berg, age 50, a controversial Jewish talk show host on radio stations KOA 850 AM in Denver, Colorado. Berg had a a contentious style, which he used to bait callers, getting the show, getting bait callers into getting on the show's phones. He especially liked to agitate right wing extremist groups such as the Denver Ku Klux Klan. And for this reason, Matthews put Berg on his hit list. So. Alan Berg was a viciously anti-white Jew. Um, I should actually try to find some of his recordings and play some on the show sometime. That's actually what we may do. We may cover Alan Berg because he was a viciously anti-white Jew. Just some of the worst scum you could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, he got taken care of. I mean, I don't know who did it. Uh, I don't really even think they actually even know who did it. I think they just kind of pinned it on these guys. But the way they said they did it was so fucking gangster. (laughs) We'll just ride with it. Uh, so on May 17th, uh, 1984, Matthew sent Jean, uh, Jean Margaret Craig, a female associate to Denver to observe Berg's movements and confirm that he would be a viable target on June 15th, Matthews, Pierce and Richard Joseph, uh, Scutari, a new recruit headed for Colorado and David Lane had left for Denver the day before on Monday afternoon, June 18th, 1984, the group assembled, at a Motel 6 in Denver to review the plans for Berg's assassination. Pierce uh, had insisted on being the trigger man and brought along a 45 caliber Ingram Mac-10 submachine gun. (laughs) 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 He's fucking uh, wignat white boys riding around with a goddamn fucking Mac-10, huh? (laughs) Like a fucking rap video. Riding around with a fucking Mac-10. I died laughing when I heard that. Mega make Aryans gangster again. Yeah, make Aryans gangster again. I'm making that a shirt. 100. I'm making that a shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Make Aryans gangster again. Uh, uh unleash your inner Bob Matthews, fam. <laughs> uh, when Bert pulled his Volkswagen Beagle, uh, that's yeah. Anyway, I'm not even gonna do that. Fuck it. I ain't gonna do the. I ain't doing violence things. Fucking gay. Hell, Bob. We're Matthews. just joking. Yeah, hell, Bob than... Matthews. Now, fuck these Jews. Hell, Bob Matthews. He did great. Hell, things. Bob Matthews. Uh, when Burry pulled his Volkswagen Beetle into the driveway at nine twenty-one, Lane pulled in behind him. Matthews jumped out of the front passenger side door, opening the rear door for Pierce, who ran up the driveway. When Berg exited his car with a bag of groceries, Pierce opened fire point blank range with the Mac Ten, hitting Berg twelve times before the gun jammed. The group rushed back to the Motel 6, gathered their belongings, and headed out of town. Now, that just doesn't seem like it makes much sense to me. Why would Bob Matthews get out to open the door for him? That just that, that doesn't make any sense. Why not just roll down the fucking window or open your own fucking door? It's just, I don't know. It just was, it stuck out as bizarre to me. Uh, so, uh, Sunday, June 24th, here comes the rat. Uh, David Lane delivered $30,000 of counterfeit money to Robert Martinez in Philadelphia, which he had reluctantly agreed to pass for the order. Lane told him to pass the bills in Jersey, not in his own neighborhood. And Martinez, I mean, like, man, if a motherfucker's got the last name Martinez in your group, he's he needs some background checks done. <laughs> right? Like, what the yep. fuck, Martinez? Like, I get it, Spanish, so on, and yes, I do think Spaniards are white and all that stuff, actual Spaniards, but man, Martinez? In America, it's tough, bro. Like, there's too much fucking, too many Mexicans, like, to be able to trust that. Like, you know, maybe, like, I don't know, maybe in Canada, like, you know, maybe in some, like, a little bit whiter, whiter country, like, you know, basically whiter country, like, but the amount of Mexicans in America is just, like, you can't, you can't go with that. It's tough. Not fucking Martinez. I mean, they don't even got like one that sounds like elite, right? Like Gonzaga. Right? That sounds like a little bit more elite, right? Than fucking mm-hmm. <laughs> Martinez. I don't know. Maybe I'm just 
talking shit. But that's does to me. Well, dude. Uh, dude, if you're in the states, dude, you have to be super much more careful than that. Like it's just it's just what it is. So basically, the sus the suspect the suspect Martinez does does exactly what David Lane tells him not to do, and he like spends the money at a corner store down the street from his house, gets himself booked, and ends up ratting on everybody. Uh, Martinez called Matthews asking him for sixteen hundred dollars to hire an attorney. Uh, after he got busted, and then you know Robert J. Matthews tells him, "All right, I'll get you the money." He still rats on him. He still fucking rats on him. Uh, so. Uh, after this, Matthews decides to ha- hijack another armored car, but this time in California. He made contact with Charles E. Ostrout, a supervisor at the Brinks Armored Car Service Depot in San Francisco. Ostrout had visited the white American bastion in 82, complaining that minorities were getting all the jobs and promotions at Brinks. And this is exactly what gave birth to the order. The order was a bunch of working class white men that were tired of being fucked over. That's what it was. Uh... Okay, um, on July 1st, 1984, Matthews headed to San Francisco, hoping to get inside information on the best and most lucrative Brinks vehicle to rob. Ostrout selected the Brinks truck uh, that runs to Eureka at a place of North Ukiah as the perfect armored truck to hijack. On Thursday, July 19th, 1984, Matthews and six members of the order, uh, Parameter, Salterquist, Sakari, Dewey, Pierce, and Barnhill, Stopped at a Brinks stopped a Brinks armored truck on the highway 101. When I was watching the uh, little, uh, it was like there's like an eight or ten minute documentary I was watching about this, and they said that when they did this shit in the daylight on the highway, the people on the highway thought it was like a movie. They thought like that they were a movie. They didn't think it was real because it was so outlandish. Like these guys jumping out with like assault rifles, blocking off this fucking armored car on the highway and robbing it. Uh, so, yeah, the, the cop was saying, like, the people around, the witnesses, thought it was a fucking movie. They didn't even think it was real when it happened. Uh, so, um, ba, 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 ba. stopped the armored truck on Highway 101, robbing the guards of more than $3.6 million. The gang escaped, yeah. The gang escaped and drove to Reno, Nevada, where they split up into several cars and then drove north to Bi- to Boise, uh, to divide the money during the robbery, Matthews lost a nine millimeter Smith and Wesson semi-automatic pistol, registered to Andrew V. Barnhill, providing the FBI with its first solid lead uh, in the string of armored car robberies. So, in the heat of it all, man, he got fucking he got too flustered and lost a gun, and that's what brought him down. I mean, that along with the the, the Mexican ratting on him, right? I mean, they were already on his tail because of the Mexican, and then that just really tied him to everything, really solidified everything the Mexican had been saying. Uh, so, emboldened by their success, it says here, Matthews decided to use Ostrut's inside information for yet another Brinks robbery. This time he set his sights on the vault at the Brinks Armored Car Service Depot in San Francisco, where they periodically handled shipments of money from Hawaii ranging from $30 million to $50 million. Ostrut recruited Robert Allen King, an operations manager for the Brinks Depot to assist the planning and carrying out of the heist. If successful, it would be the biggest robbery in the United States history, but it never came to fruition. Uh, so here it talks about how the FBI started getting them. FBI used information obtained from serial numbers on the handgun left at the bank robbery. The FBI began zeroing in on the numbers on the members of the order. By August, it had compiled a list of many of its members and had identified Robert Matthews as a leader. By September, FBI agents accumulated enough substantive information to convince the Bureau headquarters to mount a major offensive against the militant racist gang. It wasn't long before the precinct or presence of some 40 federal agents roaming around the rural northern Idaho, known for its anti-government attitudes, was noticed. And this is another, this is like, uh, you guys know how much I used to talk about um, Eric Rudolph. And I should start talking about Eric Rudolph again, because that dude... We can learn a lot from guys like that. And this is another situation where, although there were people in the Nantahala uh, rural areas who never would have openly condoned violence, they helped Eric Rudolph avoid the feds, right? Because they believed in him and they saw the state as the enemy. And the same thing here with with, uh, Brother Matthews. When the people of rural Idaho saw the feds sniffing around, they got a hold of the order like, hey, 
Then boys are here looking for you. Stay the fuck out of Dodge. And we can win the hearts and minds of rural white America. We can. And they will tacitly support us. They will support us silently. And that's all we need. Uh, when the order found out that the FBI had been around asking questions, more of the game left the area and went into hiding. Split into two groups, Matthews and his cadre preferred the cheap hotels and safe houses, while Pierce's tribe preferred the mobile lifestyle moving from town to town and campers and travel trailers. Gary Arboro moved his belongings from Sandpoint to a remote mountain cabin near Samuels, Idaho, as an FBI airplane watched. <laughs> the airplanes were fucking following them as they moved, dude. Uh, Matthews asked an associate, Artie McBeardy, uh, or McBirdy, to establish a message center so the group could stay connected. He rented an office in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> that tripped me out when I saw that. I was like, oh, shit. Uh, and installed an answering machine whose messages could be picked up and left. Uh, Martinez rats. Uh, so it just tells here how Martinez snitched them all out. Um, uh, on October thirty or October first, nineteen eighty four, the first day of a scheduled trial, Philip Thomas Martinez decided to become an FBI informant. His attorney told him the FBI had him linked to the order, and he would most likely be named as a co-conspirator in any future indictments to protect himself and his family. Martinez gave the authorities detailed information about the order, the knowledge of their crimes. He also agreed to collect more information about the gang's current acti- activities. On Thursday morning, October eighteenth, nineteen eighty four, three FBI agents in a green U.S. Forest Service truck drove onto Yarborough's property in Samuels and were immediately met with gunfire. <laughs> These boys were not fucking around. Uh, they hastily retreated, returning that evening with a search warrant. Inside the cabin, agents found a treasure trove of evidence, including documents, explosives. Hang- this is the one criticism. Well, many, but this is the main criticism I have of the order. Uh, and look, far be it for me to like judge these guys with the, when the heat is on them so hard. But man, there's three, three times in this story where they totally shit the bed and 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 fuck themselves there's the gun there's this and there's another time when matthews actually leaves some he leaves a car with some other information but we're almost done with this guys about five more minutes and then we'll get on out of here uh i want to finish this up though it's really an interesting and important shit uh so yep um Treasure trove. Oh, uh, found a treasure trove of evidence, including documents, explosives, grenades, and a case of ammunition, at an alarming co- and an alarming collection of pistols, shotguns, rifles, and two Ingram Mac tens. Uh, there were also gas masks, knives, crossbows, assault vests, radio frequency scanners, and other equipment. Yar- uh, Yarbrough, however, managed to escape into the woods. The search warrant provided the second major break in the investigation when the FBI laboratory identified one of the Mac tens as the weapon used to kill Allen Berg. Which, you know what I mean? I don't really fucking believe that. I think they could have found any forty-five caliber gun in there and they would have pinned it on those guys. Uh, yep. uh, well, we've already debunked uh, f- like bullet forensics anyways, right? Yeah, I don't believe in that shit at all, man. I don't. Uh, as So as Pierce's group roamed the Southwest, staying mainly in trailers uh, and trailer parks, Matthew's group, now including fugitive Gary Yarborough, rented five houses in small rural communities near Mount Hood, 35 miles east of Portland, Oregon. Gary Dewey and a few members migrated to Puget Sound region where they rented three secluded vacation homes on Smuggler's Cove near Green Bank on Wibley Island. It was Matthews who inadvertently put the FBI back on their trail by contacting Thomas Martinez, the fucking rat, and asking him to fly to Portland, Oregon for a short meeting. On Friday, November evening, no, or I'm sorry, on Friday evening, November 23rd, 1984, Matthews and Yarborough packed up Martinez, or picked up Martinez at the Portland International Airport, then drove to the Capri Motel located at 82nd and Halsey Street, where they rented two rooms. Martinez had reservations on Saturday morning uh, for a flight back, had Flight had Saturday morning reservations for a flight back to Philadelphia. The FBI planned to follow Matthews to his new safe house after the meeting, but when they saw Yarborough, their chant, their plans changed. Early that Saturday morning, November 24th, the FBI surrounded the hotel, waiting for the two figures to emerge. Martinez had been contacted by phone and told to stay in his room and not answer the door. When Matthews left his room on the second floor, he spotted surveillance and then started shouting a warning to Yarborough. He ran across the rock. He ran across the walkway, down the stairs, and across the parking lot to exchange gunfire with the police. Matthews shot one agent in the leg and was wounded in his right hand, but was managed to escape. Yarbrough tried to escape to the bathroom window at the rear, but it fell 15 feet into a tangle of bushes and was captured. Matthews, here it is. Matthews left behind his car with various weapons, including a silencer-equipped Mac-10. 
uh, a hand grenade, $30,000 in cash from the Brinks robbery, rental agreements for the houses near Mount Hood, and a book of names and cell phone numbers in code. The same morning, Matthews hitched to ride, a ride to his hideout in Mount Hood, wearing a makeshift bandage on his right hand. He told people he injured his hand working on his car. Uh, after recounting the shootout with, FBI, with the FBI, Matthews told his group that they were leaving Oregon immediately and heading out to their safe house in Wibley Island to regroup. While recuperating there, Matthews found, penned a four-page declaration of war against the Zionist occupation government of North America, which he planned to send to all major news, newspapers, calling for the elimination of politicians, judges, and anyone else in authority who got in their way and concluding and concluded the letter with let the battle begin on Monday. Here it is. There's the final day on Monday, December or the final sequence here. Monday, December 3rd, 1984, the FBI Seattle office received an anonymous call from a payphone in which the person said that Matthews and other members of the order were hiding out on Wibley Island and were heavily armed. When the tip proved to be true, FBI dispatched 150 agents to the island to make sure none of the fugitives escaped. By Friday morning, December 7th, 1984, the FBI had all three hideouts surrounded. Arrest, uh, agents arrested four members of the gang without incident, including Dewey, but, including Dewey, but Matthews refused to surrender. A 35-hour standoff ensued, during which Matthew fired at the agents numerous times with a submachine gun. On Saturday, negotiations stalled out, and at about 6.30 p.m., the FBI fired three M79 Starburst illumination flares into the house, knowing it would likely catch the home on fire and end the standoff. But Matthews did not surrender. On Sunday morning, agents found the charred remains of Robert J. Matthews and later identified him by dental records. It is said that Matthews fired over 1,000 rounds at agents. There you go, man. There you yep. go, man. Hail the great Bob Matthews, man. A true Hail warrior, man. A true warrior who said what he meant and meant what he said. Bob Matthews with commentary by Dr. William Luther Pierce. The year 1983. The speech you are about to hear was given on Sunday, September 4th, 1983, by Robert Matthews at the General Convention of the National Alliance in Arlington, Virginia. A few weeks later, Matthews declared war on the enemies of our race, went underground with a handful of companions he called the Silent Brotherhood, and began fighting. His fight lasted until he was burned to death by a secret police task force a little over a year later, on December 8, 1984, on Whidbey Island, Washington. My first contact with Bob Matthews was in 1980, when he began corresponding with me. After the first few letters, he became a member of the National Alliance, and we corresponded for more than a year before we met. In his letters, he had a number of questions about both the Alliance's message and our recruiting activities, and I answered them as well as I could. We finally met in 1981 when he came to my office for the first time. Bob was a strong, sturdily built, 28-year-old man with short brown hair and an open, friendly face. We talked about a number of things, both theoretical and practical. Bob was interested in ideas as well as in the ways in which we might deal with the immediate problems we were facing. The thing that most impressed me about Bob during our meetings was his intense earnestness. There was none of the make-believe revolutionary about him, none of the historical cultishness or organizational hobbyism or excessive fascination with weapons that I've so often encountered in young men seeking a psychological escape from the unpleasant reality of a Judaized America. Bob was a serious man. He could smile, he could joke, he could laugh, but the overriding impression one got from talking with him was of a man who, like many Americans, was greatly concerned, greatly disturbed about what was being done to our country and our people. 
but who also, unlike most of those who are concerned, was determined to do something about it, to do whatever he could. To Bob, the situation was quite clear. We were under attack by an extraordinarily malevolent, dangerous, and capable enemy who was determined to destroy us, to destroy our world, to destroy our race, to wipe out every trace of us, just as its tribal God had commanded it in the Old Testament. And our responsibility was to fight this enemy with all our means. There was no question of should we fight, but only of how to fight most effectively. And in particular, there was no question at all of whether or not he personally should become involved in the fight. That required no discussion, no hesitation or soul-searching. He took it for granted that it was the inescapable responsibility of every honorable white man to join the fight immediately. Those who failed to do so were cowards or traitors. So we discussed his personal situation, his resources, his training, and his inclinations. I suggested to him that he might best spend his time and energies trying to recruit other people for the alliance among his neighbors and co-workers near his home in Washington State. And that's what he did. Two years later, during the summer of 1983, Bob wrote to me about his recent experiences attempting to recruit among farmers, ranchers, and independent truckers in the Pacific Northwest. I asked him if he would prepare a short talk about his recruiting activity and deliver it at the Alliance's general convention on the Labor Day weekend. He agreed to do so, and the following is his talk. Thank you, Mike. My brothers, my sisters, from the mist-shrouded forested valleys and mountains of the Pacific Northwest, I bring you a message of solidarity, a call to action, and a demand for adherence to duty as members of the vanguard of an Aryan resurgence and ultimately total Aryan victory. The signs of awakening are sprouting up across the Northwest, and no more so than amongst the two-fisted farmers and ranchers a class of our people who have been hit especially hard by the filthy, lying Jews and their parasitical usury system. From the beginning of this nation to the present, the yeoman farmer has been a symbol of the Aryan work ethic and a living monument to masculinity. Whenever I think of the first American Revolution, I often remember that stirring poem about Concord in Lexington. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Unfortunately, comrades, that poem glorifies a fratricidal conflict. How I dream of a new poem, a poem for today. Out of the valleys, out of the fields, pour the Aryan yeoman horde, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Thence the Aryan farmers came and removed the Jew forever, forever from this world. Let us not forget, however, that the Levantine vermin are well aware of the dangers that an aroused and angered yeomanry represent to them. The tillers of the soil have always been something of a mystery to the Jews. Cities corrupt, cities corrupt, while the soil, the valley, the field, the farm, they revitalize and replenish a weakened and drained mind and body. How the weaselly little city-dwelling Jew fears and suspicions the Aryan farmer. What a contrast, what a contrast in mind and body between the two. I think that deep within the breast of our Aryan yeomanry lies a long dormant seed, the seed of a racial awakening, the seed of resurgence, the seed of anger, and the seed of the will to act. We must radicalize the American yeomanry. We must bring as many of them as possible into our vanguard for victory. The task is not going to be easy. TV satellite dishes are springing up like poisonous mushrooms across the domain of the tillers of the soil. The electronic Jew is slithering into the living rooms of even the most remote farms and ranches. The race-destroying doms are everywhere. 
Allied with the Jews in their attempt to neutralize the Aryan farmer is the ever-present local rural pastor or minister. My personal experience has shown that usually the only organized opposition we will encounter when organizing in a farming or ranching community is from some local pastor. However, the stranglehold that the churches have upon rural America is fast eroding. That stranglehold is fast eroding because the average American farmer and rancher is in extreme financial difficulty. When a man is on the verge of losing his second-generation farm, his livelihood, and in essence his whole life, due mostly to the Jew usury system, he finds little solace in theological baggage from the Levant. I'm particularly encouraged by the success that Texas Klan leader Lewis Beam has had in organizing amongst the farmers and independent truckers. He's shown us the way, now we must do it for the Alliance. The potential is there. Working out of a base in northern Idaho, he created an organization called NoFit, National Organization of Farmers and Independent Truckers. Their slogan is, don't throw a fit, throw a bureaucrat. A beam working with actual farmers and truckers from the Northwest has managed within a few months to reach out and radicalize thousands of these kinsmen. I was talking to a young lady recently who works as a waitress in a large truck stop at Rock Springs, Wyoming. Every time No Fit puts out a new newsletter, they send her 500 copies. She said they are all gone within a few days, with many of the truckers either joining on the spot or subscribing to the newsletter. The regime in Washington, D.C. is extremely worried about the further radicalization of the American farmer. Fortunately, instead of implementing a program that will genuinely help the farmer, they're responding with massive shows of force and repression. So much the better. Sixty miles south of Spokane, Washington, along the Idaho border, is a farming area we refer to as a Palouse. It's one of the richest farming areas in the world. In many places, the Palouse has topsoil that is an incredible 18 feet deep. Along with wonderful soil, the Palouse has a very favorable growing climate. Even so, comrades, many farms in the Palouse are being foreclosed upon. I have met and talked with one of these unfortunate farmers, a kinsman by the name of Ray Smith. Mr. Smith is a large-framed, ruddy-faced man who likes to refer to himself as, quote, a Snake River cowboy and damn proud of it. His father farmed the land he lives upon, and Mr. Smith was recently planning to retire let his son take over the farm. Mr. Smith's dreams have been shattered, and he's on the verge of losing his 2,000-plus acres, his home, and his son's future livelihood. Mr. Smith, to his credit, took a long, good look at his problem and how he arrived at so starry a state. Now, take heart, kinsman. What did Mr. Smith say when he came to the root cause of his problem? Mr. Smith said, Jew! 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 Not only did Mr. Smith say Jew, he yelled Jew. His neighbors started yelling Jew. And how did the system react? By sending a plane, a helicopter, a bulldozer, SWAT teams from all over the state of Washington, and 60 very heavily armed deputies to the foreclosure in Mr. Smith's farm. Needless to say, Mr. Smith is now a member of NoFit, and so are his neighbors. Mr. Smith also travels all over the state of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho speaking out about the Jews and handing out copies of the Protocols of Zion. We need this man in the Alliance. Radicalization of the American farm movement is also taking place in the Dakotas and Colorado. Last week I talked at length to a Colorado-based racialist activist who has extensive personal experience dealing with the Colorado farmers. Several years ago this gentleman distributed huge amounts of WRAs and other literature to farmers and ranchers around Fort Collins, Colorado. His efforts bore fruit, for soon after his initial literature distribution, he witnessed the birth of the anti-Jewish, pro-white Farmers Liberation Army. The feds are, are extremely panicked about this outfit. The same gentleman also gave me copies of the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette, published in Fort Lupton, Colorado. This is an excellent 
little rural newspaper with a considerable circulation which is geared towards the needs and interests of the farmer and rancher. What's interesting about this newspaper, in this issue, is an excellent little article on the Protocols of Zion. And this issue here is a full-page advertisement for a very anti-Jewish, pro-white, racialist organization. The Jews are coming down hard in this brave little newspaper like chickens on a June bug. And it appears that it might eventually fold up, but the seeds have been sown. So comrades, I have briefly informed you of the potential for our movement, which lies within the farming communities across this nation. We must, it is our duty to, take advantage of the ever-increasing radicalization of the American farmer. The fate of every last white man, woman, and child on this planet lies squarely on the shoulders of us here in this room today. Out of all the white racialist organizations in this nation, the Alliance, and only the Alliance, has the potential to bring us to victory. Through the Alliance lies the salvation for our entire race. We cannot fail. Therefore, let us not only preach, let us live racial economics. Meddling falls, we are not only eating, breathing, and sleeping, we are growing together as one mind and one body. We have broken the chains of Jewish thought. Meddling falls, we know not the meaning of the word mind, it is ours. Our race, the totality of our people. Ten hearts, one beat. One hundred hearts, one beat. Ten thousand hearts, one beat. We are born to fight and to die and to continue the flow, the flow of our people. Onward we will go, onward to the stars, high above the mud, the mud of yellow, black, and brown. So kinsman, duty calls. The future is now. If months from now you have not yet fully committed yourself to the alliance and the responsibilities thereof, then you have in effect not only betrayed your race, you have betrayed yourself. So stand up like men and drive the enemy into the sea. Stand up like men and swear a sacred oath upon the green graves of our sires that you will reclaim what our forefathers discovered, explored, conquered, settled, built, and died for. Stand up like men and reclaim our soil. Kinsmen, arise. Look towards the stars and proclaim our destiny. In Medellin Falls, we have a saying, defeat never, victory forever. Thank you. talk was well received by the Alliance members. People like to hear a call to action even if they personally have no intention of doing anything except cheering from the sidelines. My own reaction at the time was somewhat cooler, and I tried tactfully to point out to Bob after his speech that his experiences in the Pacific Northwest might have given him a more optimistic view of the situation in America than was justified by the facts. I told him that the people he had talked with during the summer weren't really a cross-section of the American public, and that white people generally weren't yet in a revolutionary mood. In view of subsequent events, perhaps I shouldn't have tried to be tactful, but instead should have stressed the need to maintain a realistic view of our situation and not yield to the urge for premature action. I expressed my regrets in this regard to his widow a few months after his death. She told me that it wouldn't have made any difference. Bob already had decided before he gave his speech what he would do, she said, and there was no holding him back. He was fed up with the slow work of recruiting, which was really much more discouraging work during the 1980s than it is now. And he had made up his mind to take up the gun against the enemy, regardless of the consequences. He already had told her that what he intended to do 
almost certainly would cost him his life. When most people think about the consequences of Bob's decision, they think only about the negative things, about the facts that he was killed and that a dozen good people were sent to prison. Some of our less radical brethren bemoan the fact that Bob, by using violence against the enemy, provoked repressive measures which made their own work more difficult. Bob succeeded in killing only one Jew, they add, and that Jew, an especially abrasive and obnoxious radio talk show host named Alan Berg, who was machine-gunned in Denver in 1984, would better have been left alive so that he could continue stirring up anti-Jewish feeling among his listeners. Furthermore, the violence gave the patriotic movement a black eye, they complain, and it scared away many potential supporters who want nothing to do with violence or illegality. There is, of course, some truth in these complaints. Many timid people were scared away from the patriotic movement by Bob's activity and the enormous publicity it generated in the controlled media. Perhaps these people's financial support would have been helpful. Perhaps it would have been better not to put the enemy on guard by attacking prematurely. There is, however, a value in what Bob did which goes far beyond such petty consequences. In every revolution, in every great movement for human renewal, symbols are every bit as important as guns and money and manpower. Bob gave us a very important symbol. In the day-to-day -day work of writing and publishing and advertising and recruiting and organizing, we tend to forget the reality of our situation. We tend to believe that we are in some sort of political or ideological contest where you deal with your opponents the way the Democrats and the Republicans deal with each other. We go about our work in a civilized way and lead more or less normal lives. At the extreme, we occasionally swap insults in public with our enemies. They call us haters, and we call them un-American or anti-white or sick. The fact is, however, that we are engaged in a fight for racial survival. It is a fight in which either our race or the Jews will be exterminated utterly. And it is a fight which we are losing. We've been losing it for the past 50 years. In every daily newspaper, in every radio or television news broadcast, we're hit in the face with the fact that we're losing. Our noses are rubbed in it every day. We read the statistics about the flood of non-whites coming across our borders, both legally and illegally, and at the same time we listen to the controlled media and the churches uttering shrill accusations of racism against anyone who dares suggest that we already have too much wretched human refuse on our shores, while our government wrings its hands and claims that it is powerless to stem even the illegal portion of the flood. We see the growing hordes of this refuse on the streets of our cities. We know what it is doing to our schools and to the lives of our children. We see a rising tide of degeneracy, of crime, of racial mixing, of drug usage year after year. We see ourselves being dispossessed in our land, with our enemies gloating over each new victory in their growing campaign to disarm us and to silence us while the dispossession continues. Bob Matthews saw all of these things too. And then he stood up and said, I'm not going to take this anymore. It's not enough for us to say that we believe in a white America. We also must fight for it. It's time for us to begin killing the people who are killing our race. That set a few faint hearts to fluttering among those nominally on our side, who stress their obedience to the laws our enemies have imposed on us. It should have made them feel ashamed of themselves instead. Because Bob was essentially right. He did what was morally right. He may have been a bit premature. 
and he may have made many tactical errors. But he reminded us that we are not engaged in a debate between gentlemen. Instead, we are engaged in the most desperate war we have ever fought, a war for the survival of our race, and that ultimately we cannot win it except by killing our enemies. And we cannot kill our enemies without taking a chance on being killed ourselves. We needed that reminder. Bob elevated the level of our struggle. He took us from name-calling to bloodletting. He cleared the air for us.